Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. And this week, after a few opening remarks, I'll be talking with His Excellency Michal Althani, Qatar's ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Althani and I will be talking about developments in Qatar and the Gulf, including COVID-19, the prospects for a reconciliation within the GCC, U.S.-Qatar relations, and the World Cup in 2022, which will be held in Qatar. All of that and more after this short break. Qatar today is stronger than three years ago. As, as a matter of fact, IMF and the World Bank has issued reports stating that Qatar's economies continue to grow and will continue to grow in comparison to the blockading countries' uh, economies. In fact, today Qatar is more resilient, more independent on its food security, for example. We are opening up new trade routes. Qatar is doing extremely well now. Uh, of course, at the beginning of the blockade, as took everyone at a surprise why those countries did these actions, of course, there was an immediate impact, an immediate impact that the government has managed very well. Welcome back to On the Middle East. That's Ambassador Michelle Fanny, and I'm going to turn to my conversation with him in just a moment. Like most of you, I'm reading The Room Where It Happened, John Bolton's memoir of his 17 months as President Trump's national security advisor. With regard to the Middle East, there's much to read and talk about in the book, but I would like to focus on one specific event and passage. That is the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki in July 2018, and what it said and may say about Russia's policy towards Syria the headlines from that summit, you may recall, were basically two, that Trump met with Putin alone, only with interpreters, none of his staff present, and that at the joint press conference, Trump seemed to accept Putin's denial of meddling in the 2016 elections. Now, as Bolton recounts in his book, for Putin, Syria was at the top of the agenda for Helsinki. Putin had told Bolton and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in advance of the summit that he too had concerns about Iran's role in Syria. And of course, that was a top priority for both the United States and for Israel. And that while Russia sought a strong Syrian state, Iran's interests were different and broader and not necessarily aligned with Russia's interests. According to Bolton and Trump, Putin did most of the talking in Helsinki and spent a lot of that time talking about Syria and getting Iran out. Although in all of his conversations before the summit and at the summit, Putin did not want to raise expectations or promise whether he would be able to deliver on that, that is getting Iran out of Syria. Now, El Monitor closely covered the implications and follow-up from Helsinki for diplomacy on Syria, including Putin's often frenetic, but ultimately failed efforts to work out some type of deal to prevent Iranian and Iranian-backed forces and Iranian missiles from threatening Israel. Now, because that didn't work out, Israel has since uh, taken this matter into its own hands, regularly targeting uh, Iranian and Iranian-backed groups and bases in Syria, and I might add, which 
Israel neither confirms nor denies. With Syria facing the risk of state collapse, probably even more so as a result of the U.S. Caesar sanctions imposed last week, the time may be ripe for another U.S.-Russia conversation about the future of Syria and Iran's role there. U.S. Syria envoy James Jeffrey, in his briefing last week about the Caesar sanctions, spoke of some of the positive steps taken by the Russians on the U.N. political process and, and the need for Russia to, to do more. Um, in addition to the hardship faced by the Syrian people as a chronically failing state in conflict for nine years now, both the U.S. and Russia also face a risk if Syria collapses. State collapse in the Middle East is no surefire winner for the U.S., even when brutal dictators such as Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Muammar al-Qaddafi in Libya are toppled. And as we saw in Iraq, Iran has a comfort level in dealing with states in conflict and is there at times to pick up the pieces as they could, at least in part, in Syria. The Caesar sanctions may be just the catalyst in addition to the deteriorating situation in Syria to find a so far elusive common ground with Moscow to energize the political track. That seems to be happening and that's a good thing. Of course, Putin's interest is not the U.S. interest in Syria and Russia considers its support for Assad and the Syrian state a success. But there are differences between Russia and Iran in Syria and the time may again be ripe for the U.S. to test Putin on his interest in preventing state collapse. Now to our conversation on Qatar and developments in the Gulf. I am pleased to have with me today His Excellency Mashal Al-Thani. He is Qatar's ambassador to the United States, a position he has held since April 2017. Ambassador Althani has a really distinguished career in Qatar's Foreign Service, having previously served as ambassador to the United Nations, the European Union, and France. And he is with us today to talk about events in Qatar and the region. Ambassador, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you, uh, Andrew. And at, at the outset, I would like to uh, wish you and your listeners good health, hoping that everyone is trying to stay safe. I also would like to uh, thank you and Al Monitor for hosting me today. I'm looking forward to an open and frank discussion with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Let's get right into it. The Emir and Foreign Minister of Kuwait have been trying to repair the split between Qatar on the one hand and Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt on the other. Those four countries shut down all trade and transportation with your country back in 2017. I think this was just soon after you came into your job as uh, amb ambassador to the United States. Where, where does this mediation effort by Kuwait stand at this time, and how do you see this issue developing? Andrew, allow me first to uh, just give a background information to your listeners. Uh, I am not sure that everyone following your show is, is probably aware of uh, how this uh, crisis started. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that this crisis started by 
a hack on the Qatar news agency, a hack that was orchestrated from the blockading countries, claiming that uh, there was a statement by His Highness the Emir of the State of Qatar and that they have taken uh, a, a severe position against that statement. A statement that was installed uh, actually into the Qatar news agency, as everyone refers to as fake news. Based on that fake news, and, and despite the many attempts to explain to our neighbors that this was a, a hack, uh, at, the, at the time we did not know who was orchestrating the hack, they kept uh, ignoring our reach out and saying to us, this is too late, uh, you know, there was a statement that came out. And they have built this aggression against Qatar and the blockade on this aspect of the statement, uh, which is a fake news. Uh, and they continued. They have continued aggressively, aggressively against us uh, in every aspect, whether it is economic, uh, political, or even at some point, uh, the, the military aspect. So I think the mediation of the Kuwait, His Highness the Kuwait of Emir, has never stopped. Kuwait is uh, continuing to, to push for a solution, to bring us all around the table to discuss uh, and find a solution forward. We also appreciate uh, the efforts that uh, the current administration, uh, the administration of, uh, of the United States here, uh, is also helping uh, to uh, push for a resolution because it is really counterproductive to everyone's efforts in combating terrorism and, and addressing the challenges of the region. Um, unfortunately, we have seen the last um, uh, attempt by the uh, Emir of Kuwait, uh, the foreign minister of Kuwait have visited Qatar. Our minister went back to, to Kuwait. There were some uh, discussions and attempts by uh, the Kuwaitis to push forward. Unfortunately, the blockading countries continue to, to push back on any efforts, whether it is by the Americans or by the Kuwaitis. How do I see things moving forward? I think it is about time that those countries come back to their own senses and acknowledge that the only way forward to find a solution is a through dialogue. A dialogue that is uh, based on, on respect uh, for all, all parties, uh, based on, on principles, because at the same time, and we do have also concerns uh, that they, they need to address. So unless we see everyone around the table uh, and that these blockading countries attempts to continue this aggression against Qatar, whether in the media or, or politically, I think they should, ha should, should realize that all these attempts for the past three years are not working and it's about time to come to the table. Now, the four countries have put forward a list of uh, grievances uh, that they claim you, Qatar, need to address, including Al Jazeera and Qatar's relationships with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood among other things. Do you accept that list as a negotiation point or what do you think those countries need to do before you're willing to talk or are you willing to talk unconditionally with those countries? Qatar has always said that we are open to discuss any, any, any issue that they have. Now, however, I have to underscore that any discussion has to be based on respect uh, of our sovereignty. Andrew, though the, three, the 13 demands were really put together after pressure from the United States, because the United States at that time was really puzzled into why did these countries did this action against Qatar, so they kept pushing for it. So uh, at the end, the, the, the blockading countries came up with 13 demands uh, that were made not to, to be met or will be rejected. Uh, so 
Uh, I don't think these 13 demands are demands that they were put for basis of negotiations on purpose by the Wilkinic countries. That's my view. They have claimed that Qatar is uh, supporting every terrorist organization you can think of. Of course, this is false and not true. Uh, I think if we look back into history, we know who has been supporting terrorism and who was involved in acts of terrorist. Um, we don't need to go through that. But I think that, again, they should stop blaming. Uh, they should stop accusing falsely. Uh, stop this information campaign and really come forward and put real grievances. One of the key issues in the dispute has been that the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Egypt have called out Qatar for its ties with the Muslim Brotherhood, which they consider a terrorist organization. How do you respond to these accusations? I think, um, uh, first, before I go and answer this question, I truly believe, actually, that uh, the blockading countries uh, is using this as a pretext uh, in order to uh, sell their uh, grievances to the West. They are accusing Qatar to support the Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood. This is false. This is not true. Uh, again, I emphasize that this is uh, just a way for blockading countries to, to convince you here in the West that Qatar is doing something unacceptable. In terms of uh, whether Qatar su- supports or has engagements with the Muslim Brotherhood, we, consider, we, we as the, uh, the United States, as, as uh, the United Kingdom, we do not consider the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. I think there has been a lot of efforts from the United States uh, a lot of efforts from the United Kingdom, from European countries to look into this matter. And they have concluded that uh, they do not fit the criteria uh, to be labeled as a terrorist organization. Therefore, Qatar does not consider them a terrorist organization. We are in the same line of thought with the United States and the United Kingdom and, and our European allies. Ambassador, Tell us what the costs of uh, the blockade have been for Qatar. You talked about uh, trade, the loss of trade. You talked about uh, political consequences. You even mentioned military consequences. How has this all played out in Qatar over the last three years? In terms of economic consequences, I I can assure you that Qatar today is stronger than three years ago. As as a matter of fact, IMF and the World Bank has issued reports stating that Qatar's economies continue to grow and will continue to grow in comparison to the blockading countries' uh, economies. In fact, today Qatar is more resilient, more independent on its food security, for example. We are opening up new trade routes. Qatar is doing extremely well now. Uh, Of course, at the beginning of the blockade, as took everyone at surprise why those countries did these actions. Of course, there was an immediate impact, an immediate impact that the government has managed very well. And today, I can uh, tell you that Qatar um, is exporting uh, dairy products uh, in comparison to uh, 2017, where it was uh, uh, importing uh, most of its dairy products from Saudi Arabia. Ambassador, has Qatar's engagement with the Arab League and the Gulf Cooperation Council been affected at all by the dispute with your neighbors? Qatar's commitment to these uh, two organizations uh, is there. Uh, We still attend the meetings. We continue to uh, work through these organizations. Unfortunately, uh, some members who are part of these organizations are really trying to undermine the work 
of, of the Gulf Cooperation Council undermine the work of the Arab League. In terms of the Arab League, I think the Arab League really needs to, to be looked at and reviewed in terms of uh, reforming the, the institution. And uh, Qatar has, uh, in, in many cases, in many occasions, uh, reiterated the importance of uh, reforming the Arab League. I think today the Arab League, has, as you can see, uh, Andrew, uh, is really lacking the ability to, to address the, the challenges in our region. Unfortunately, sometimes it's because of uh, manipulation from certain uh, members. But we are committed to these organizations and we will continue to work for them. And do GCC meetings continue as well? GCC meetings continue, some of them, not all of them. Uh, I have to say it is a big challenge for us in Qatar to, to attend these meetings because of, um, for example, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, they will not uh, facilitate our entry uh, to attend these meetings. Sometimes if they are in a third country, we, we, we attend. For example, whether it's in Oman or in Kuwait, we will be, our attendance is, is very easy in comparison with going to one of the blogging countries meetings. Let me ask about uh, some of these regional issues. Uh, does Qatar support the Trump administration's peace plan? And how worried are you about uh, the possibility that as soon as next week, Israel may begin to annex some Jewish settlements in the West Bank? Qatar welcomed uh, the efforts that the uh, U.S. administration is, is uh, taking to, to find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Uh, in terms of the uh, reports uh, regarding uh, the possibility of uh, annexation uh, that might be happening next week, uh, you know, the state of Qatar has, has uh, stated very clearly that this, is, this unilateral action is going to undermine the process between the Palestinians and, and the Israelis. Uh, it's also uh, going to uh, violate uh, all the legal ag agreements that has been signed uh, and, and have been uh, talked about with the, the Palestinians. And it's going, to, it's going to be, on the long run, uh, creating some uh, realities that will also put Israel in a difficult situation. So I think, I believe that's something very dangerous, and, and uh, we call on the Israeli government not to do so. Ambassador, Qatar has maintained uh, good relations with Iran. Was the decision to, for the United States to withdraw from the nuclear deal a good idea or a bad idea in, in your score? And what do you counsel the U.S. and, and the region on dealing with Iran? So, Andrew, if I may just give some perspective on the relationship between Qatar and Iran before I answer the question. It's really important for uh, everyone to understand that Qatar shares with Iran um, the largest gas field, uh, single gas field in the world. So that's an offshore gas field that requires us to make sure we have good communications with Iran on, on the distribution of this LNG that is coming out from that. Thus, the relation comes between us and Iran as a relation that of necessity that we need uh, to maintain good open uh, communications for that, that purpose. In terms of the agreement, uh, it is unfortunate uh, that our concerns from the beginning uh, were not taken in consideration in terms of the agreement itself. Uh, when I say our concerns, I don't mean only Qatar, but I mean uh, the whole uh, region. Of course, there were some uh, consultations, but at the end, we have not uh, seen certain issues reflect, uh, reflected in this, in this agreement. Uh, it was an agreement that uh, could have been built on, but the administration decided, as you know, to uh, withdraw 
we'll see how, how uh, this is going to un unfold. So you would have preferred that early on there had been a regional dimension to the discussions with Iran and that that might have been a, a good complement to the nuclear deal. I, I would have preferred that from the beginning, from the beginning of the launch of the agreement, uh, that we would have been consulted and we would have advised that there are many issues that should be really included in this agreement, not only the nuclear matter. But unfortunately, this didn't, didn't take place. So uh, we, we really hope that um, at some point the US and Iran would be able to, to talk uh, and uh, find, find a solution to, to this. The United States has always said it's open uh, to come uh, for the Iranians to, to discuss this matter. So we'll see how this will unfold. Ambassador, we talked earlier about how the dispute with the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Egypt came about within weeks of your taking up the post as ambassador to the United States. And that summer, President Trump even had a tweet where he seemed to take their side against Qatar. But since then, the U.S.-Qatar relationship is restabilized if not strengthened in the political, economic, and military realms. Qatar hosts U.S. CENTCOM in the Gulf at El Obeid base. Tell us about the U.S.-Qatar relationship over the past three years. So you are right. I came uh, at the beginning uh, of a challenging uh, period for, for my country. You see, Andrew, the, unfortunately, the blockading countries tried to mislead the new, at the time, new coming in administration. They have shared information with them, of course, false information, that the Qataris are doing X and so, and so, and so. But uh, very soon after, a couple of weeks, the administration realized that there is something wrong here, that what, ha what those countries are claiming that Qatar is doing is not true. And then uh, immediately, uh, the administration started to uh, push in favor of uh, reconciliation and the uh, uh, a discussion between the, the, the blockading countries and Qatar to, to resolve this rift. Uh, and this continues to, uh, to be the, the administration's uh, position. Uh, they continue to try to push to find uh, ways for, uh, for, for the blockading countries to come to the table. Unfortunately, the blockading countries continue to resist. We have seen growing number of initiatives uh, between, between Qatar and the United States, whether it's the military, as you said, or uh, political coordination or uh, on, the, on the economic aspect. Uh, I think one of the success that uh, witnesses this uh, um, re relations, relationship is the strategic dialogue that was signed on uh, 2018. Uh, so that's a witness to, to the uh, strength of the US-Qatar relationship. And, and we will continue to work with our partners here. I think uh, there is a, a lot of things we can do together. We appreciate the role of the United States uh, in stabilizing our, our uh, region. And, uh, We'll continue to work with them. Ambassador, it appears that President Trump has a good, strong personal connection with Sheikh Tamim, the Emir of Qatar. Is that your observation as well? Yes. Uh, both uh, the, the President and His Highness uh, enjoy uh, excellent relationship. Uh, they consult uh, regularly on uh, many issues uh, and um, uh, the president appreciates uh, the role that His Highness uh, and Qatar is playing vis-a-vis uh, -vis helping uh, the United States in advancing a peace process in Afghanistan. 
So uh, there, there are many issues that the president and, and his highness consult on. Ambassador, uh, let me turn to COVID-19. As of today, I, I checked the numbers before our conversation. Qatar has 89,579 cases, but only 99 deaths. That's a fatality ratio of 0.1%, remarkably low. Uh, the, the, the fatality rate in the United States is about a little over 5% worldwide, about the same. How has Qatar been able to achieve such a low fatality rate with a fairly high number of, of cases given your uh, a relatively small population? So, uh, Andrew, I think it's due uh, to the early and proactive action from the government, um, as well as our uh, ample capacity to treat new cases. I think this is what has uh, enabled, enabled us to have a death rate of less than 0.1%. Uh, I think also providing the free testing and medical treatment, est establishing health centers um, also helped. We, we also ensured safe living and working conditions uh, by providing food, water, and, and protective equipment to our residents and, and workforce. But the government moved quickly also to close schools, non-essential business, uh, public spaces. We also made the, uh, the wearing of masks mandatory and, and, and launched a contact tracing application uh, and required all citizens and residents to install it on, on, on their phones to alert them in case uh, an infected person is, is around them. So uh, I think it's a combination of those factors that helped us to um, um, have this result. Uh, I've noticed as well that Qatar has a kind of um, foreign aid program to assist other countries with uh, COVID-19. Tell us a little about that. Qatar, we, we actually responded to that by, um, for example, helping uh, here in, in the United States. Uh, we have donated thousands of uh, respiratory masks and other medical equipment uh, to several cities, uh, including Miami, New York, uh, Charleston, and L.A., uh, we, we have partnered with the communities through the U.S. to provide uh, in-need students uh, with, the, with the resources necessary, necessary to continue uh, distance learning. Uh, Qatar Airways has transported uh, uh, over 70,000 tons of medical equipment uh, and aid relief worldwide. It has carried uh, over uh, 1 million people stranded abroad back to their home countries, uh, including uh, Americans, um, and announced it would uh, give away 100,000 free flights to frontline workers across the globe. We've been covering here at El Monitor uh, an exodus of expatriate and migrant workers uh, from the Gulf. Has uh, this been the case in Qatar as well? And do you see this complicating the post-COVID-19 economy in Qatar and the region? Uh, I, I think that um, it's... it's uh, it's a challenge not only in Qatar. It's a challenge that uh, all over the world, um, uh, not having um, the cooperation of residents uh, taking the necessary measures to stay safe is going to complicate any government's effort uh, to uh, address this challenge that we are you know, facing. But we all, again, we, we, we believe in Qatar that this is a collective uh, challenge that uh, all countries need needs to work together to address it. Let me mention, if I could, the World Cup that's coming up in two years. Has mm -hmm. 
the coronavirus affected your planning for the cup in any way? And what have been the challenges and how are you managing them? Uh, there is no doubt that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, when it hit, uh, started in, in uh, the impact to see in, in March, at least in our, in our region, uh, have slowed down many, many projects. Uh, but I can assure you that a significant number of projects has been already delivered. Uh, and we just inaugurated recently uh, a stadium uh, that is uh, part of this uh, uh, infrastructure that has been built specially for the uh, World Cup. As you said, Andrew, it's in two years. Uh, I think uh, by that time, uh, things are going to be uh, completely different. Uh, I was very glad to hear today that um, we might have a vaccine by, by, by December. So, so hopefully that this is the case and uh, uh, things are going to go back to normal for not only us in Qatar, but for uh, everyone around the world. Um, and I can assure you Qatar is going to host uh, a wonderful World Cup where the fans will have excellent time and enjoy their, their experience down there. Ambassador, do you think because the World Cup is a sport, not a political event, but a sporting event, that that will be an opportunity, a potential bridge-building opportunity to bring about a reconciliation with your neighbors? As, as you said, Andrew, uh, sports gets, brings everyone together. Sports is, 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 a, is a bridge. Uh, and this is uh, really what Qatar believed in when it started thinking of hosting the World Cup because uh, we believe that sports brings people, brings people together. And we wanted the world to look at the Middle East and our region in a different way that, you know, it's not only conflicts. In terms of uh, this could be a bridge building between um, the blockading countries and Qatar, I hope I before we are uh, reached that, that date that uh, we would have concluded this rift and found a solution to it. Uh, again, it's in their, it's the, the ball in their court. They are the ones who have to come to the table and, and, and realize that they've been for the past three years trying to um, convince the world that Qatar is doing something wrong and supporting uh, terrorist factions. And honestly, no one is believing them anymore. Ambassador, could you comment on the condition of foreign workers in Qatar, including those working on the World Cup, as well as on other projects. How do you assess their condition there and what is Qatar doing uh, in response to concerns about conditions of those workers? First of all, Andrew, uh, I would just like to say that we as Qataris are grateful and appreciative to everyone who is in, um, in Qatar working with us to develop our country. I would also like to say that as Qataris, as a Qatari, uh, we don't like to see any uh, mishandling or violations uh, in, in human rights for any of those workers or any expatriates in Qatar living. I have to also say that, yes, we went through some challenges. Uh, I have to also uh, highlight that there is a strong will by the government to address all these challenges. Uh, we have came a long, long way. I believe the Supreme legacy committee that is overseeing the World Cup uh, preparation did a fantastic job in putting together uh, regulations and directives to uh, companies uh, in Qatar, uh, not only Qatari companies, but foreign companies who want to come and in, in invest in, in, uh, in uh, infrastructure on how to, uh, to deal with, with the workers. Uh, is, this, is this enough? We will continue to work on them. And we will continue to enhance if there is any violation, we will address it. 
we are very confident in Qatar that if there is anything wrong, we are very confident to fix it. Ambassador, uh, my last question as we draw to a close. Uh, you uh, have served in Washington as ambassador for three years, but you served here prior. You're also a graduate of American University. What would you advise new ambassadors to the United States from the Middle East or elsewhere? What would be your kind of uh, do's and don'ts, lessons learned as representing Qatar here in Washington? I would advise, honestly, for no ambassador to come here and try to spread this information about others in, in, in Washington, D.C., because honestly, uh, the experts here in Washington, D.C., know their subjects, and it's only going to fire back at you. Ambassador, how have you been managing, that is, doing diplomacy during COVID-19? I have to say, it, is, it, ha it has been uh, challenging. I think uh, most of our work is, is uh, done through meetings. So not, not, uh, not to have the ability to meet uh, is going to um, impede our, our uh, ability to understand and discuss with our friends here in, in, in Washington, D.C. We try to stay in touch, and um, uh, hopefully now we are seeing things are easing up and we can start going back to meeting again. Ambassador, we've covered a lot of ground. I regret we're out of time. I just want to thank you again for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Andrew, for hosting me. I appreciate it. We'll be right back for some closing remarks after this short break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Elmonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Elmonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform on Israel with Ben Caspit, and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Welcome back to On the Middle East. I'd like to thank our guest today, Ambassador Michelle Alfani, Qatar's ambassador to the United States. And thank you all for listening. And I look forward to joining you again next week on On the Middle East on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.